Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Uh, today on the podcast, we have our good friend Suzanne Stabile. If you don't know Suzanne, you are missing out. Suzanne is most known for her work with the Enneagram. She's been on the podcast many times. Her first book was The Road Back to You, which she wrote along with Ian Morgan Cron. You might remember they had a uh, podcast with that same name, which uh, I think first handful of episodes, I actually helped them record. This is years ago. Uh, she has since uh, written another book, which is The Path Between Us. That's probably the name. It is the name. And uh, she's got her own uh, podcast, Enneagram Journey, which uh, it, it, it's great. You need to check it out. And uh, one of the things we try to do here uh, on the podcast is help you navigate faith in the modern world. And I can't think of a singular tool that is more helpful for every one of us navigating our own spiritual journey and understanding who we are, why we do what we do, than the Enneagram. Actually, this morning I was just throwing in my truck a copy of Suzanne's most recent book to give to a friend because I think, hey, this is a great tool that is going to help you. And I think for y'all, my listeners, um, the Enneagram is a great tool just as well. And so uh, this conversation, Suzanne and I helped kind of navigate some of the issues that uh, we're all dealing with now uh, on this side of what's going on with COVID. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Check it out. And here we go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. One of the most heartbreaking parts of this past 17 months is that I didn't get to see my good friend, Suzanne Stabile. And she is gracing me with her presence to be back on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Luke. You know, I would, I guess I'd hang out with you anywhere. Uh, you know what's sad is that we didn't get to hang out together. Yeah. We, we had, like, literally the Sunday that COVID hit, yep. you were supposed to be in Austin. A couple months later, we're going to be in Malibu together. Yep. Didn't happen. No. That's really sad for me. Yeah. Well, it's sad for me too, but I, I'm, I'm still ambulatory, so we're good. We can just reschedule. You know, I think that's great. And the fact that you use big words like that is pretty cool too. Um, I don't know what that means. I assume that's, that's a good thing that you're ambulatory. But I was thinking about the origin story of our friendship. And it reminds me of the Gospels yeah. in that there, there are multiple different accounts that tell the same story. <laughs> you tell the story where I reached out to you and yeah. was like, and then I tell the true story about how you reached out to me. <laughs> And the thing about the Gospels is it shows us sometimes you can have truthful accounts that don't always historically match up with each other. Yeah. Did I reach out to you? How did I, I know think, to reach out to you? Heather? I think it was... Oh, I that think could be... Knew, maybe Heather reached out to each of us for the other one. I, you know, that could be... See, there's, that's why there's four Gospels. There's, th- yeah. there's a third account yeah. that it's... Yeah. yeah. And John I, doesn't care. <laughs> John just telling John's just doing poetry. And they got He's, together and it was beautiful. Exactly. I, when I was younger, I used to think that like uh, John was like the freshman like philosophy major. Yeah. yeah. Who's just like, ah, oh, it's like light and there's yeah. dark and now there's light in yeah. the dark, right? So I've kind of used to I've, think that you don't think that anymore? Well, I used to like think that in kind of a condescending way. Because I was oh. like, we've got to find the historical account. But uh-huh. now it's like Poetry seems far more true than any historical account that we often come up with with the things that matter most in life. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, all of the young would-be priests 
when Joe was in seminary, uh, um, had to have two majors, and philosophy was one for most of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of don't even know what it means, really, actually. <laughs> all, all I know is that I was taking a philosophy course at SMU when I was a freshman, and uh, sophomore, same course, junior, same course, because I withdrew passing every year. Because the guy would say, same guy, you know, um, for example, that's what he would start with. For example, a cow has four legs and a table has four legs. Therefore, a cow is a table. And every time I thought, bless your heart, I grew up in the panhandle and no, cows are cows. And I would gather up my things and walk out. And finally, he said, you either have to do this or go take a math class. Uh, and so I went to the community college and took a math <laughs> course. And um, and so when Joe wants to talk philosophy, I suggest that he call someone. Yeah, get on the phone and call someone. Yep. That's that's right. It sounds like your philosophy pay, uh, professor was uh, smoking some stuff that wasn't legalized back then. I think so. And that's it's just hard for the rest of us to compete with that. Yeah. You know, the 60s were the time, though. 60s, early 70s. <laughs> philosophy in the 60s and early 70s probably came from a different source yeah, than currently. Yeah. yeah, there's some uh some different uh pharmacological aids that were uh <laughs> probably very beneficial for the philosophy community. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um yeah, philosophy. I don't want to talk about philosophy. I'm glad we did, but I yeah. kind of want to talk about um like spiritual well-being. Like just the well-being, I think maybe is a better terminology because we talked 16, 17 months ago and said, hey, we're going to talk about the pandemic and its effect on our souls. And we're going to do this again uh, towards the end of it. And it's just like, when is the end of it? And we've kept like pushing this mm-hmm. down the road, or I have. And um, it seems like, you know, masks are coming off. And it seems like, you know, I saw Vermont has like 80% vaccination. Mm-hmm. And so they're removing restrictions. Obviously, in Texas, we got rid of restrictions like about a year and a half ago uh, compared to the rest. Just embarrassing. Shaking. You know, I'm starting to say on airplanes when I'm traveling, I'm traveling again now, I'm working, and mm-hmm. if somebody on the airplane says, oh, where are you from? I just say, Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> you just go somewhere else. Well, people people can tell we're in Texas right now because our power is going to roll off at some point. Exactly. It's over 15 minutes. That's right. We're gonna... that's right. We won't be able to talk to each other. No. So there's going to be breaks every 15 minutes, yeah, and that's just a, the, the, ro- the rolling, rolling blackouts. Because <laughs> Texas... Because Texas is Texas. I wish people could see your eyes rolling as I'm uh, talking right now about that. <laughs> but um, here we are. And so we're on the side. Now, he, your, uh, your work on the Enneagram and grief. Yeah. Uh, really fascinating. Obviously, I don't like talking about grief because sure. I'm a seven. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about how some people have the ability to, like, refrain from negative emotions. And I was like, isn't that just called, like, being a human? Like, that's what we all do. Um, I I watched I was watching a show maybe last summer and it's this guy who um oh he he owns like a, a fight gym. He's a mixed martial arts gym mm-hmm. owner and he's forced to go to counseling. I think he has he has like an alcohol addiction and his therapist is like, it seems like whenever like you're sad, you either uh you fight, uh you drink or you mess around with women. And he just looks at the camera and he go, or at the counselor and goes, Yeah, what else are you supposed to do? <laughs> Yeah. Is there a fourth? Yeah. Is there a fourth is, thing I could be doing? <laughs> is there another one? 
<laughs> and so uh, one of the things that in your stuff on grief is that you talked about um, at, after 9-11, we were different. And I can imagine after the pandemic, we're just going to be different people. Like something has, has changed us. Do you feel like you have like some answers for like what do you think has changed? Because after 9-11, it seemed like security was stripped away from us. Mm-hmm. Do, do, is there something else that you'd pinpoint and go like, this is what's substantially changed from the pandemic? You know, I don't know if I can do one thing, but I, I have a few things that we could consider. Watching people respond to one another and to the pandemic taught me a lot about the Enneagram that I don't think I would have known without it. If we'd never gone through the pandemic, I wouldn't have known to watch for that nuance and that number. So, for example, sixes, you know, were prepared for a pandemic Mm -hmm. because they prepare for those kinds of things all their lives. It's their way of being in the world is to prepare. So they were ready um, early on we ran into uh, a six counterphobic who was an apprentice with me at the flower place, you know, where you buy flowers for outside. And she had on a mask and had on gloves and she's got her flowers and she's all perky. And I don't want to have the mask on. I'm hot and I am a little bit gripey. And she says, hello. And I said, how are you doing? She said, great. But I want you to know that uh, those of us who are sixes, don't worry about us. We're really worried about y'all. And I thought, well, I'm okay, but I'm going to watch. So I so silo that for a minute. And then Kevin. people were saying to fives, boy, you must love this. This must be your kind of event where you just get to stay home. You must love this. So just to use those two numbers. Sixes were prepared for the onset of the pandemic, but they were not prepared for the ongoing reality of the pandemic because nobody was. And fives didn't love it. Fives like to have downtime, but they like to be in charge of when it's going to be downtime and when it's Mm going to be go time. So what happened immediately, it seems to me, people who are accustomed to talking about the Enneagram, sort of started um, figuring out how everybody else was going to manage this before they worked on what does this mean for me? Because hmm. what does this mean for me was a question that was too too scary to ask. Hmm. And if we talk about the fact, so you know I, I have a book coming out in November, and we don't need to spend time talking about that, but I, you know, it feels like we should for a minute, but I'm not going to do it right now. I'm just telling you. I have a book coming out in November, but I sold the book before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the introduction and the basis for much that follows is about liminal space or liminality. So for listeners who don't know what that is, liminal space is a a Latin word that talks about when you're not where you were and you're not where you're going. Mm -hmm. So it's like being on the threshold of something. Mm -hmm. And liminality is kind of a trendy thing right now. People are talking about it like the Enneagram kind of got trendy, right? Yeah. 
But Richard Rohr talked to Joe and me about liminality the first time probably 20 or 25 years ago. And at that time, he said, you know, I think liminal space is the best teachable space. And then he waited a minute and said, in fact, it could be the only teachable space. And if you think about the Gospels and the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and all of that, if you think about that, then the reality is that God is always pushing us into liminality, my guess is in order to teach us. Hmm. So when I, the pandemic hit, I had been thinking about that book for a while, and I thought, okay, I missed it. I'm, I should have gotten it done because now people would be all about, I'm in liminal space with the rest of the world, and what does that mean? But I, I don't think that's true. I think the timing was exactly right because it's coming out in November and everybody will have experienced liminal space for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the discomfort that comes with liminality is palpable for every human being. It just comes for different reasons at different times. Yeah. So in relationship to um, the pandemic and our response to it, my sadness for those of us in the West, I, I presume the West, I'm for sure in America, North America, we kept waiting for it to be over rather than living in the moment of mm-hmm. what it is right now. Now, you didn't have that option because you had a lot to deal with as a human being that Mm -hmm. happened in real time, that meant you had to show up. And for a seven to have to show up emotionally and physically and be present and not have that backdrop of all the things that would help you take a break is teachable space. And so the question is, what did are you learning? And you actually are, uh, you have an opportunity to get closer to that than the rest of us because of the loss in your life and the reality of your vocation and the fact that Lindsay uh, is a nurse who works with children who are vulnerable. It's like when I prayed for you during this time, I kept thinking everywhere he looks, there's vulnerability just waiting for him. Well, the reality is that was true for a lot of people. It just wasn't as heavy and as multifaceted as it was for you. Mm -hmm. And so I think the question coming out of liminal space is what did we learn and Mm. I think we were so busy orchestrating the end of the pandemic that the answer may end up being not much wow I feared this morning as I was thinking about this conversation that I was gonna you were gonna get me to have like an Oprah moment where I like break down and cry uh on air and uh 
like early on, I feel like you're, you're getting close to that. Um, cause it seems like, you know, what I've been learning is, uh, there's just a lot of sadness and that there's a lot of stuff that you like, a, um, you, I, uh, that I don't have the ability to, to jump out of maybe as much as I used to. And, uh, there, there is this old uh, X-Men movie, which is exactly where you thought this comparison was going to get uh, drawn from, where there's one of the little m- mutant people who could, like his thing was he can jump every which direction, which is like a, a seven superpower if I've ever seen. So he could just like transport himself across the room and he gets killed by like the bad guy because the guy just guesses where he's going. And then he's stuck, like he's been stabbed. And so he's like, keeps trying to jump out and he can't go anywhere because the guy's finally like stabbed him or whatever. And that was like the pandemic for me. It's like, typically I could jump out of this, but here I'm just, uh, I'm stuck. And I think one of the things I'm learning is that even the good stuff that I do, like preaching ministry like that, it's a way for me to jump out of my own experience. Sure. Sure. And especially during my sabbatical, like if, wait a minute, I, I, I can't be like jumping somewhere else to, to do something, even if it's good, means that uh, the emotions I'm running away from don't get lost. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of like what happened out of my sabbaticals, I just got like really sad. Yeah. And I was like, ah, this is a terrible sabbatical, but I feel like it's the one I needed. Yep. Uh, it's definitely uh, terrible. And you, it gets, you get to say, it feel, this feels terrible, but yeah. I, I'm here. Yeah. And so I'm going to be present to the terrible because I don't have any options. And it, that's an okay reason. It's, it's okay that you didn't have any options. Yeah. Because maybe, maybe what you learned without options will serve you moving forward when you choose among the options that you have. Because you're not going to never have them again. And, you know, somebody asked me the question maybe six months ago, if you could invite, you know that question, if you could invite anybody to dinner, who would you invite? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I thought about it for a long time because I'm, you know, a let's get together for dinner person and I love all that happens in those circumstances. You literally were just putting a dinner get together for us before we started recording. Yeah, yeah. That is you. Yeah, it is me. And uh, so, and you have no idea that this is coming. So I'm giving you a little heads up. Oh, no. I put you among the top three people that I would invite to dinner. Now, here's why. Well, I love you because I love you, but you can have dinner with me anytime, but that's not the point. The reason I put you there is because you've had the courage to talk to all the people who are influencing the things that Joe and I are all about in real time because you just call them up and say, hey, let's do this. How about being on my podcast? And everybody seems to say, okay. So I think one of the things that could come from you having a sabbatical as a seven with not very many options is that one option is to take some ownership 
of all the things you've learned mm -hmm. doing what you're doing right now and talking to people and listening. You're a very good listener and you uh, allow people to teach you because you're teachable. So I'm hopeful coming out that we're going to have some great things. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we are a culture that is content to let things unfold. And so let me tell you what I think happens on that threshold. I think three sevens and eights want to run ahead to create something new. Yep. Without necessarily bringing the good from the old with them. And I think they're willing to create something new out of nothing because you're capable of that. So I think that's what will happen. I think the withdrawing numbers, for the most part, which is fours, fives, and nines, when faced with the reality of being in liminal space, want to go back to things like they used to be. Okay. And I think ones, twos, and sixes are just there on the threshold, uh, mindful of what's happening there and a little bit afraid to go back and a little bit afraid to move forward because for us, our, we get our sense of our value from outside of us instead of from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So how do we put that together? Because it's not like you, you can do all three of those options. That's right. And, and yet, in your position as a pastor, you're going to have to be equipped to deal with all three. Yeah. So if I were you, here's what I would do. If I were any pastor, this is what I would do. Uh, you have enough people in your church who know the Enneagram that you can invite one of each number to come to the table. Oh, and you good. can meet with them on a not demanding but regular basis and say, what is your response? And response is the key word. You can, they're not allowed to react. And then you put the things that you're thinking about for the church on the board and say, please respond to this. And then you get the spectrum, and I think that the answers are in the mix, not in any one stance. Hmm. Yeah, I think that you, you can't just pick one. No. I think you've got to listen to all of us. Yes, and, and it feels scary to move forward for fours, mm -hmm. fives, and nines because they, they, they want something that's tried and true. And ones, twos, and sixes want to be in relationship with whatever happens either way. Mm -hmm. And honestly, because of how you see... I think threes, sevens, and eights have had to deal with some anger during the pandemic that other numbers weren't feeling. It's like, why can't I affect this? Why can't I make this work? Why can't I? And it's because it's bigger than you. So I'm going to start now that we have no masks at my church and people are starting to emerge. Let me give you an example of what 459 looks like. Joe and I were uh, speaking to a Sunday school class because we're new there. And 
Joel was speaking and they invited me to, which means I was speaking. (laughs) 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 And (laughs) uh, we we left to go back to the whole area where the offices are. Well, they've remodeled most of the church other than the sanctuary during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the older woman who I never want to be, uh, I feel very safe talking about this because I'm quite sure she'll never hear it, says to Joe, so I'm trying to get in here to see these offices, but it's locked. What are these rooms? And Joe said, well, I'll let you in. So he goes to the keypad and opens. So all these offices are in a big circle around uh, the workspace for other folks. So she says, what are these for? Is this classroom? What's this? What's this? And Joe had to name for her the office for each of the clergy and all of the people and what they do. And then she said, well, what, what are you here for? What do you do? And he said, well, I'm new and this is what I do. And to her, it seemed like, Wasted space, wasted money, space for people she doesn't even know. Like, she had not a single positive feeling about what had happened because it's not like it used to be. It's not like it used to be. Yep. And I think the answer we're all going to have to start giving people is, it never will be. Mm Mm-hmm. It, we, we cannot go back. We can't do it. As someone who would be excited about new possibilities in a new mm-hmm. future and would push that direction, what do I need to be aware of so that I can be more sympathetic and compassionate to those who don't hear that initially as, oh, this is exciting, something new, mm-hmm. but they hear this as just the loss of what means the most to them or what their preference was? Because you know as much about the Enneagram as you do, so this doesn't fit everybody who's listening. But what I would want you to do is be mindful that it doesn't matter what you say if people can't hear you. Mm-hmm. And you can't lead a group that you haven't joined. If you're an aggressive number, you must join the group first. Mm-hmm. So if you do that, good. and then you think about, okay, what would the perspective be for I wish this was like it used to be? Then you say, you know, one of the things we brought from the way we used to do worship is this, because we can and because it brings us together or whatever, whatever the language is. And then I, I think you, we're going to, though all of us, you and me and Joe, all of us are going to have to put the responsibility on people to recognize that they are going to have to do some their own work to try to find a new place to stand and a new direction because nobody can do it for you. Nobody can do it for you. And I think the people who don't want new offices and who don't want all of that, I think you don't wait till they ask. You give them a tour. Now, whatever the equivalent of that is, Mm -hmm. I think they should set up a tour at the church to say, for those of you who know that we did remodeling and you haven't been here at 3.30 this afternoon we're going to show you everything 
Yeah. But how do we take this idea outside of the physical space of a mm-hmm. church? Because mm-hmm. uh, functionally, like everyone wants a tour of what was right. and what is going to be. That's right. And it's not as easy to tour uh, life, relationships, the, like right. the more complex things, unlike you know, an architectural change. Yes. Okay, so for me, it's easier, actually. Okay, how so? Well, relationships are everything for me, mm-hmm. right? So I don't really care about the physical space. I care about, before COVID, we did this. Before we lost that time, we did this. Joe and I, at 70 and 74, are actually having conversations about what we lost physically by not being as active as we were and how we're going to have to change to accommodate um, a new, healthier way of being in the world. You know, I was sometimes on the road three weekends a month before COVID. Yes, ma'am. That can't happen. It can't happen. So what that means is new choices. And that means the ability to choose appropriately. And that means good discernment. Yeah. And people don't know much about discernment. And yet that's a question that I'm sure you're asked all the time. What am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do? What's God calling me to do? What's my part in all of this? And those are the right questions to ask. The wrong questions to ask for everybody are, do I have to go back to this? Do I have to keep doing this? Are there other options for me? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes the answer is, yep, you got to go back and do that. Hmm. And sometimes it's, there are some options, and they all have two sides. Yeah. They all have two sides. Yeah. So from uh, my perspective with Joe, with some hesitancy and a little bit of guilt, I would say uh, we were very grateful for the time together. We hadn't had that kind of time together in a long, long time. But I would also say I was writing during that time, And so I was unavailable, and Joe did, Joe took responsibility for everything in our home. We've not done life that way. And now I need to take it back, and I don't want some of it. And it's not that we didn't fairly divide things. It's like, I I don't want to cook anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want to. And that's just too bad. That is too bad. Joe and I spent two hours yesterday, late afternoon, after shopping for groceries and all that. Two hours trying to decide where to eat. Ah. (laughs) Two. Two hours. And nothing was quite right. Nothing was, no, we can't do that. And I don't want to drive down there. It's too hot. And I don't want to do that. I don't do that. And then we ended up at Harry's. What's it called? I'm wild about Harry's. We ended up at wild about Harry's. Were you wild we, about it? Uh, no. We had a chili dog and fries. <laughs> Two hours yeah. of debate led to a chili dog. That's right. You know why? Because we why wanted a hamburger steak. And you know what? Nobody does that anymore. Oh. So we, we wasted 
time trying to have an accommodation that didn't involve doing something that we neither one wanted to do. And that's really embarrassing. And I made up my mind when it came to mind this morning that I wasn't going to tell you about it because we're too old for that kind of nonsense. And both of us too smart and too wise. But what it taught me is, and this is big, I think. I think this is big and helpful. We'll see. What it taught me is that coming out of COVID, we believe that we have the right inherently to have our expectations met because the world is open again. Wow. So it's like the person who's been uh, like fasting or super strict on their diet and you've ended the diet and now you just want to be gluttonous. And so you expect to get all those things. Yeah. Wow. That's right. So it's not like we're we're not coming back better. Now we just have all this pent up expectations that we're now expecting to be delivered. That's exactly right. Oh, goodness. You're not wrong. I don't think so. And, you know, every expectation is resentment waiting to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were kind of like saying we were mad. We were willing at one little moment to drive to Fort Worth, to Hofbrau, to get our favorite hamburger steak, but Hofbrau went out of business. And then we had this whole thing about why would they do that? They were in a perfect location. It was always full. We had to wait every time we went there. What's wrong with those people? Now, yeah, I... We are fairly evolved humans. (laughs) But we have this idea of, I haven't been able to have this all this time. I get to have it now. Wow. There's a 100% chance I'm going to use that in a sermon at some point. Because, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of us who uh, want things a certain way. And life no longer gives us... That's right. Those things, right. and it, obviously in the church world, we can do that about our petty, silly preferences that don't seem that petty, and they don't seem that silly to us. Uh, those on the outside, it sure does. For sure. me, like a hamburger steak, honestly, I don't know what that is. I yeah, really don't. Too um, bad. You're never going to know because they no, don't do I, it anymore. I'm, obviously, I'm not going to ever know. Uh, <laughs> but what I do know is that it's really important to you. Yeah. And this is something you're willing to spend two hours on. I, uh, there was, um, I think I, I think I sold this from uh, the minimalist group that are obviously yeah. uh, proponents of a minimal lifestyle, but they talk about this practice of uh, you pack everything up, everything you have uh-huh. in boxes, and then you take things out one at a time mm-hmm. to determine if you really need it. And the pandemic has been this like boxing of our schedules, our practices, our preferences. And when we take them back out, let's analyze what we're doing. Like, let, let's get the things that matter the most and let's not just get stuck in the, the pattern of doing like what's immediate and what's in front and what's like what feels urgent and is accessible, but like what, what matters the most. Yeah. And, and honestly, we were mindlessly doing all of that. Yeah. We didn't know two hours went by. We didn't even know that we had... Uh, this expectation in Dallas, Texas, that you could get whatever you want to eat. We didn't know any of that. We just got lost in the 
the chase. We got lost in the hunt for something that it seemed like should be available. And so I think people who um, have to find a job are going to find that to be very challenging. I think people who haven't seen family for a long time are going to find out that, particularly with older folks, fear changes you. How so? How does fear change you? I, you know how, how much I love Joe Stabile. My goodness, yeah. I just adore him. It's, it's almost like, a, like excessive, right? It's like, it guys, just turn it down. It is excessive, it, and I don't care. It, there, there are times I think they're just going to start making out right here, yeah. and I'll leave, but they're just, that's who they are. So, yeah, you love Joe a lot. Yeah, uh, and he mer- merges with my desire to make out wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's an Enneagram 9 joke right there. <laughs> but, but here's what happened. For those of us who are our age during the pandemic, uh, there was more fear because more people our age were getting sick. Joe has a paralyzed diaphragm on one side, so his uh, doc, who monitors all of his ability to breathe and stay healthy, said, you can't get this. You can't get this. So for for the first time ever in our life together, I thought more about losing him. Uh, There was so much loss around me. I thought about, well, what what if I lose? What if I lose him? Then the question was not, what will I do? The question was, who am I? And if I don't know the answer to that question, I'm not in right relationship with God. Yeah. And and the answer is, I'm not in right relationship with God, but I'm trying to get back. I asked Joe the first year we were married, I said, hey, if Jesus came to the door and said, Joseph, get your things and follow me, what would you do? He looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, I'd get my stuff and go. Yeah. And I said, no, 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 wait. You, you didn't really pay attention to the question. He didn't say, get your stuff and gather up Sue's and the kids. He said, you get your stuff and go. What would you do? And he said, I'd go. That was in 1987, and I've been trying to be able to honestly say to myself, if Jesus came to the door and said, Suzanne, get your stuff and let's go, could I and would I go? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think I would say, can Joe come? Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine... uh... Walking out and leaving the girls. Yeah. I can't do that. Yeah. I can't leave my girls. And I mean, Jesus obviously teaches that sort of parable over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think everybody needs to move slowly in relationships. And I think they need to figure out what matters because we will never be the same. And it's not over. Mm-hmm. Nothing is over. And we are so polarized. Yeah. There's a author, I don't know if you might want to write this name down, Miriam Greenspan. <laughs> uh, she has this line <laughs> that uh, 
<laughs> it was so cute. I got a pen. Yeah, you really were. You were yeah, trying to write this down. I don't. That, like, that's like your favorite author in the yeah. world. Um, uh, she says, suppressed grief often turns into depression, anxiety, yep. or addiction. Yep. You see the polarization, and it's like anxiety and fear and anger that's being projected. And a lot of what's going on with the present polarity is people are living in fear, and they want to be angry at something. Uh, often, if you dig underneath like anger enough, you finally find hurt, which is the actual issue. Uh, addiction, I don't, like, I don't know the numbers, but I can only imagine how that's been uh, growing during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, depression, yes. Uh, but the quote says it, it all triggers from suppressed grief. And we've all gone through grief during the season. Some of us don't even have the vocabulary to talk about grief. Grief just looks like, hey, have you cried? Like, because if you cry, that means you, you were grieving. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've got a, great, a lot of great content on it. So like to try to sum that up in a brief answer would be too much. But get, get us going in the right direction. Like, how do we start acknowledging the suppressed grief that we have so it doesn't turn into depression, anxiety, or addiction? Okay. Well, the first thing I want to do is recommend a new book for me. Uh, and the book is Ambiguous Loss by mm-hmm. Pauline Boss. Her, her name, Pauline Boss. I uh-huh. like that. It even rhymes with the title of her book, Ambiguous Loss by yep. Pauline Boss. Yep, yeah. yep. Because ambiguous loss uh, is the reality that we all have significant and meaningful loss from the last 18 months, and we have more loss to come. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, <clears throat> thank you for not asking me to run through the numbers because you know how I hate to do that. Uh, but I'm going to do it in relationship to grieving. Okay. Um, first of all, to every single person who works in any denomination, in any church, anywhere, the church has done a terrible job of teaching her people how to grieve. A terrible job. And because I know that the inability to grieve leads to all of those things that Miriam Greenspan talks about, and then there's more to grieve and more to try to heal and put back together. I, I want to talk a little bit about each number, and I'll try to be quick. So for ones, the reality of loss is um, met with guilt automatically. Ones are faced immediately with the things that they think they didn't do right or correctly in relationship to whatever's lost, if it's a job or a friend or a spouse or whatever. And so they begin to um, whip up on themselves with the help of the inner critic. Mm-hmm. And that creates anger. And the way ones intuitively manage anger is by uh, ordering things and putting things where they belong and making sure that all people are going by the rules and doing all of that. And so what happens with a one, if they're not able to stop and grieve, is they begin to reevaluate the situations and the people who did things wrong 
that caused their loss. And so it becomes an over against stance rather than a giving in to the reality of imperfection in all of our lives and the fact that loss is part of the deal. Yeah. And you know that, that Joe talks a lot about the Paschal mystery, about living and dying and rising. Mm-hmm. And and you've heard him talk about the fact that some churches are just all about rising, you know, and some are all about dying. And none of that fits. The, the Paschal mystery, the only pattern we have of living, dying, and rising happens all the time. But if you've been led to believe that if you do things correctly, there's not going to be any loss, which is what ones believe and they try to do everything correctly, well then what are they supposed to do with the fact that it didn't work? For twos, the, the question always is, am I feeling other people's feelings or am I feeling my own? Am I um, sad and can't name my own feelings? So I, I kind of scan for somebody I care about who's sad and then I can assign these feelings to that person or that event, which just puts me further and further and further away from my own grieving or from what I would have to grieve. And then to uh, soothe themselves by being helpful before and beyond request, which is messy. Mm -hmm. For threes, of course, there's surely a successful way to grieve. Grieving is uh, something that we're all supposed to do, and I've lost this or this or this person, and I need to do this well. And so what does that look like? And in our culture, it looks like a very quick recovery. It's Mm -hmm. been a week now. It's time for you to get out. We'll pick you up for dinner. You know, I would hit you if you said that to me. (laughs) It's been a week. Good grief. Yeah. For fours, the danger is confusing bearing witness to pain with grieving. Say that again, please. For fours, the danger is that they can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. So it's very easy to name that grieving, but it isn't. It's bearing witness to pain. And oh, oh, I, that's so foreign, Bearing witness to pain yeah. is not the same as grieving. no. No. I mean, I knew that. I was just for my listeners yeah. who didn't. Yeah, no. So, so a four can be with you in your pain for an unending amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely gift that fours have. But, you know, uh, I was with a, a woman who I didn't know real well, but I knew her work and she knew mine. And we were uh, driving 40 minutes from one location to another appropriately for dinner, not because we were entitled. Look, looking for your hamburger, hamburger steak. steak. And, uh, and by the way, I don't like it enough that I want anybody who hears this to set that up for me if I'm teaching in your church. Like, it's, don't, don't overthink that. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, people who know I drink tequila have given me tequila. Yes. We've got a lot of tequila. Yeah. Um, but... I like Bitcoin, people, in case you're wondering. Oh, Just, good. Interesting. Like you would. Bitcoin. You would. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, 
she had just learned the Enneagram from me, and I talked about fours being able to bear witness to pain, and her husband's a four. And she said, you know, that, that is a gift, as you taught it. But she said, I got in a lot of trouble with depression, and my husband was just bearing witness. He didn't call anybody. He didn't challenge me. He didn't say I had to get help because he was bearing witness to my pain. That's not grieving. No. For fives, grieving is not a head trip. And, you know, one of the things that stands out there as uh, redemptive in a way, redemptive in the right use of the word for fives, Mm -hmm. is sharing who they really are, what they really feel with somebody, with one other person. Because they don't want to risk that. It feels like it's going to take so much energy that they don't have enough. And so nobody really knows them, which means they don't trust really being loved by somebody, which makes room for the reality that you're loved by more than one somebody. Mm. And grieving is an opportunity for fives to step into that space because it's not a head trip. And you will not feel better with grieving until you do it. My mom and dad, my mom was a five, and they were very close, uh, like Joe and I are. And uh, when my dad died, he died in September, and my mom was with us in March for spring break. And I said to her, I don't, you're doing so well. I don't, I don't know how you're doing this. I would have my face buried in a pillow screaming. And she said, what makes you think I don't? And I didn't know the Enneagram then, but if I did, I would have said, because you didn't tell me. Because fives won't let us share that with them. Hmm. And, um, you know, as you said, you and Miriam, not grieving is really dangerous. Yeah. For sixes. I... You know, I work hard with the reality that there are two sides to everything. And sixes are the number on the Enneagram that are the most concerned about the common good. But when when there's a pandemic, that means that they can be concerned about everybody else until they die in relationship to the common good and never deal with what is good for them personally. You know, we have to put culture and society and communities back together. And the fabric of those communities is still going to be made up of sixes because they're the people who don't leave communities or groups for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So as you and every other pastor and as every uh, community hospital uh, floor, as every um, organization that is a nonprofit, as all of these groups try to put their communities back together, the first people who are going to be willing to do whatever it takes to put the community back together are going to be sixes. And they're the ones that are going to stay. Mm -hmm. The question is, are you together as a six? Have you put yourself back together? That sounds very analogous to a two. Yes, but the reasons are different. Yeah. Motivation's different. So So I'm feeling other people's feelings and responding as I would. 
sixes are aware that we have to be ready in an organized, assigned kind of way to make life work. So I bet you, and I'll, I'll just use our church. In our church, which I'm new to, but I'll let you know in six months whether or not I was right. The people who are at the table to say, let's do this. Let's try this for Vacation Bible School. Let's do this. They're not saying, I, wanna, I want it to be the way it used to be. They're not complaining. They're saying, let's try this. Their focus is what's for the common good. Their focus is not somebody else's feelings. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. You know, I have a thousand things to say about sevens and grieving because of, uh, I don't know, Joe and I just seem to pick up sevens. And your your foray into grief work was with a group of three sevens. Yes. Right? That's You've, I've exactly heard you say right. that before. You yeah. want me to talk about that? I don't want you to talk about grief and sevens too long because it'll make me sad. That means, yes, I'm going to. <laughs> so, um, three male sevens came into our life at the same time asking or for help or obviously needing help. Um, what? Two, one was our age, one was about 15 years younger than us, and one was our son, Joel. And what I learned, one of them uh, worked in the Dallas County Community College system, taught and was a librarian in that system, and I found out that he hadn't been to work in 40 days. And one was a pastor of a big steeple church, and he called and said, can y'all come? And it was not in our city, and he said, I'm in a lot of trouble. And our son Joel attempted suicide. And when I got to the bottom of what was happening with each of them, the reality was that because of the way they're put together, through no fault of their own, but through a lack of awareness, they made it to that point in life without having to grieve much because they were able to rename or uh, reshape any sad thing that happened. So an example that's important is uh, we had basset hounds when the children were growing up, and Maggie was Joel's favorite. And we had to have Maggie put down because she couldn't stand up anymore. And Joel reframed that by being angry with Joe and me and saying that we killed her and that he could have taken care of her. So reframing doesn't always look like people think it looks. It's not, it's not fantasy. Reframing is it could be this and I can make it this. And when you come across the first thing as a seven that you can't reframe, then you have this whole backlog of things that haven't been grieved. And you have to deal with those at the same time. And even if you can't name those individually, those feelings are part of what you have to carry. And the problem is you haven't practiced. You just haven't practiced. And so you're no good at it. And you don't want to do it anyway, so why would you step up for that? Why would you? And 
you would because it's dangerous not to. Mm-hmm. And so my word is it is more difficult for sevens to grieve than any other Enneagram member and more important. Eights. As soon as eights recognize that vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness, then they'll be able to grieve. And until then, it's just going to be managing things so we can finish up and be done with this. Let's get this done and let's get it done right so we can finish up. Let's just wrap it up. And nines tend to erase themselves if they think they're taking up too much space. And grieving requires space. Suzanne, I am deeply grateful uh, for that answer, and I assume my listeners will all uh, find that to be extremely meaningful for them, and uh, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Suzanne, uh, very grateful for this time together, and uh, yeah, that's good. You know, I, I can't decide if if my some part of me wanted to be a seven. But when I'm with sevens that I love and care about, I I kinda get into the pattern of do we have to stop? <laughs> Are we really done? Like Yeah. Yeah. And and we both do, actually. But well. um so, well, have a when we finish recording, you and I will find a time and we'll hang out together soon, yeah, with Lindsay and Joe and of course, other folks yes. we love. We'll do that All for right. sure. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk about things that I have been thinking about and that I'm hopeful about. For sure, I'm, I'm not one for uh oh, we could be in trouble. Mm hmm. But we we got some work to do. And if yeah. we just go back as fast as we can, we're going to miss it. Yeah. I think we need to create space. Yeah. I think the work that we do, we need to create spaces for people yeah. uh, to step into those yeah. things and to not just rush past what we've been through. Yeah. Uh, what's the title of the book that comes out in the fall? The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Journey to all. I like that. Uh, I just recommended yesterday to a newlywed couple the uh, path between us. Yep. Did I get the title right? Yes, yeah, you did. I did. Um, if I, I just saw hundred thousand copies sold on that. Yeah. Let's go. I think people realize how helpful that is. So, uh, if you don't have Suzanne's book, what's wrong with you? Go get her books. They're great. And then, can we pre-order your new your next one? Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. Suze. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.